Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to Persevere to Excel podcast. I am super, super excited for this podcast. I have Ryan with me. He's officially initiating this new space that we've been in for the last nine months and we haven't brought anyone in from the outside world, but um, I am super, super pumped. Ryan, tell us a little bit about yourself. What's going on? Well, first, it is awesome. This is awesome space. It's so good to be here and be in person with you. Um, but yeah, it's awesome to get this time to talk. I'm looking forward to the conversation and uh, get to talk about meaningful work and w- what we do at Mainstay and all kinds of good things. That's awesome. I always like to give my audience a little background of how I know my guests. So, um, so I want to give a little context here for all of you. Um, Ryan is the CEO and founder of a company called Mainstay. My good friend Jason actually works with Ryan. Yes. And Jason has been trying to make the connection um, for many, many years. Um, and a couple of years ago, I connected with Ryan based on a program that we were doing with um, high school students. But recently, Ryan posted something on LinkedIn. And I'm always, I'm one of that person that always try when I'm reading content on LinkedIn, I always try to figure out, okay, what, what's the backstory to this, right? Because like mm-hmm. in LinkedIn, you kind of get a piece, you get a little piece of who people are, but you don't really know the full context, right? So Ryan posted something and I ended up replying to the post. And in my post, I was talking about the importance of the being and the doing, right? How in the workforce space, in the corporate space, we focus so much on the doing, but we forget about the being. And Ryan messaged, um, replied on the comment and right away I was like, I got to get Ryan to sit down with me so we can have a conversation. So uh, we had a preliminary conversation, which was amazing. That should, probably should have been the podcast interview, <laughs> but it wasn't. But um, so we're, I'm really, really excited to have you here. Um, Ryan, t- tell us a little bit about like, tell us a little bit about your company. Tell yeah. Us a little bit about your company. Tell us a little bit of just a quick backstory. How, how did it come to be? And, um, and what you're doing now? Yeah, it's a great question. So simply, we do technology services. So our clients typically have between 15 and 500 employees, and we are their IT department, or we work with their IT staff, and we do all their information security, their cybersecurity work, and take care of their technology from soup to nuts. It We're today about 80 people and um, a fantastic team. I'm going to get to work with the best people every day. But that's not how it started. It actually started by accident. So I was a, ki- I was a homeschooled kid. I was really awkward. And when I first got a computer, I was like, I can understand this thing. This makes sense to me. I got it. And I just spent hours and hours and hours. And I started then being that tech support for the friends and family. You know, if anybody, if you have that, where it's like that person you call, that's who I was whenever you have a tech issue. And then that started to grow. And I started to get more comfortable with people and learn some people skills. And then suddenly I found I had technical skills and people skills. And that tends to be a little bit of a rare intersection in our space. And so businesses started calling and it was just me. I had a 93 Ford Explorer. It was a little two door Ford Explorer. I Tommy Boyd the door. Remember that scene in Tommy Boy where he backs That's up and awesome. the door goes the wrong way. I Tommy Boyd the door in a uh, snowstorm, And so it has a big old dent in the side and I'd drive that around to different clients and I'd go from helping an elderly lady upload her photos to a small business that was getting started to a nonprofit. And then over time began to hire a team and we just celebrated, actually yesterday, we, or, um, earlier this week, we had an all day training event we call Mainstay Elevate. And we celebrated our first 15 year anniversaries for team members. And those wow. first team members are still here from 15 years ago. That's and incredible. Awesome. Yeah. That, that's, I, I love that story. Just, even just you touching upon, like you found the connection between you know, technology and computer, you found your passion in there. And then you found a business through that passion. You yes. know, I am, I am curious. I know this is not where we're going to stay in our interview, but like, when did that intersection happen where you were like, Oh, this is a hobby. This is something I care about to like, you know, you mentioned earlier that people would reach out to you and say, mm-hmm. Hey, can you help me with this? Like, yeah. when did that like yeah. translate into like, Hey, I think I might have services here that yeah. people might, you know, might want to get my help on. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a story I love to tell because I think sometimes people look at being an entrepreneur and they think you have to have this business plan. They watch Shark Tank and you got to be all polished and have your pitch and know your market. And, you know, there are a lot of businesses that have a high barrier to entry where you have to really invest and know your, know a lot before you can start them. But that's what I love about service businesses is that you can just start serving and helping people. And then if people like it, they'll pay you for it. And then you can help a few more and a few more. And that's how it started for me. And so then it was 
once I got um, full, I had enough where I was working about half time doing this and I was contracting half time for another company that did technical services and they offered me a job and they were like, Hey, we see this is great. I mean, I'm early, tw I'm like 21, 22 years old. They're like, we'll give you a company car, health benefits, a good salary, but you know, you'll have to give us your client. Like we'll buy your clients and be the end of your business and you come work for us. And I had this decision and it was this wrestling mm. of like, Oh, this salary and this company was bigger and they were going places or my own little thing that was still so humble and rough. And I thought I can't give up on whatever this thing is. And so I turned them down. I knew I'd lose the contracting work when I turned them down. When I was driving back, this Foo Fighters song came on the radio and it was, there's no way back from here. And I had the windows down and I'm like, there's no way back from here, baby. Like, this is it. This is the moment. And that was really, it was a couple years after I got started. And it was the time where I was like, okay, this is a business. Like, let me start to grow it. What I wished I'd realized earlier today was that business building is a completely different skill than the skill that my clients were hiring me for. You know, they were hiring me to solve their technology problems. I got good at that pretty quickly and then was able to hire an incredible team who took that to new levels and has continued to take it to new levels ever since. But building a business, the process, the management, the systems, the structure, that's a whole different thing. And it took years before I really realized like, oh, I'm going to become a business leader here, not just a technology leader. And that was a whole adventure of its own. No, there's a couple of things you just said in there that I, I would love to unpack, right? So that intersection between like you develop a certain skill set, mm -hmm. you had your own little thing on the side that you were doing, but you also had another company that, that was subcontracting mm -hmm. your work. And I'm sure that other company saw your skill set, saw the potential, not just your potential, but the potential of growth that you can bring through them, right? And they they, they kind of wanted to poach you yeah. out, right? Like, yeah. and, and I feel like... in in, in our, in the early age, like that stability is always a driver sometimes. And I feel yes. like nowadays it's almost opposite of that, right? Mm. Where more people are, you know, they're trying to start something of their own. They're grinding it out. Right. And, and, and the other pieces too, nowadays there's more options too, right? Like you can do Grubhub yes. or DoorDash or yes. Uber and then go back to do your, whatever you're trying to build. But it's a completely different space than where things were before. But I am curious about that. Like that, that poaching thing is, is, is always a big temptation, right? Like where you're like, do I give up? Like, yes. you know, I can always come back later, right? Like, yes. like most entrepreneurs are always wrestling with that, right? Yeah. Like stability or, yeah. or risk, right? Yes. The scarce of like, hey, this thing that I'm building might not work, yes. right? Or I can go into a company, they can pay me a yes. good salary, they give me benefit, yes. I'm good to go. But you chose to go the other way. You went more on the risk path. Yeah, yeah, and let me be really clear that I have deep respect for everyone who takes the other path. 100%. And I have an amazing team that we have amazing alignment with. And I also was really fortunate that I was young. I didn't have a family. I was living over my parents' garage. I had like a cell phone and you know, my insurance on that truck was very, very cheap, let me tell you. And so I had very little expenses. And so the risk for me was like, hey, I'm in a place in life where I can choose this thing where it's a, it's a risk where if it goes down, it's not gonna be that big a deal, but if it goes up, there's a really big upside to it. It's asymmetrical, you know, the downside was much less than the upside. And I think that's one of the things to look for when you're taking risks is to say, hey, how, how much risk is this? And I think the other, one of the big lessons that I learned along the way that I wish I'd embraced and articulated earlier in my career is feedback. And I don't just mean feedback from people, although that's super important. Finding mentors, people who've been there, really asking them feedback in books, but feedback from the world, like really look at your life, your career objectively. And for me to look at it and say, okay, looking at this thing, you know, I had one client and then five clients and then 20 clients. All right, what's my real risk here? Are all 20 clients going to fire me tomorrow? Mm. What are the odds that I'm not going to be able to get any more, that I'm going to suddenly wake up and forget how to do this? Like, like there's enough feedback that I'm getting that there's value here. Let me keep going where there's value. I think sometimes, you know, it worked for me with Mainstay. Now that's not the only business that I've tried to start and been involved with. And I've tried to fund some other companies as I'm successful, some not. And I, you know, did a startup with a video game online community years ago. It didn't work. And you know, the reason it didn't work largely is because I think because 
I had this amazing idea, right? This founder and I, we were like, this is going to be awesome. We're going to revolutionize online gaming and do online tournaments in a new way. And yet we didn't really try and then look at the feedback. What does the gaming community really want? What's really work? We just thought we had this awesome idea. Let's spend all this money on an app and, you know, a website and let's build everything out instead of really doing the hard work of, do we have something of value here? Can we test this? Can we get good feedback? And so I've been fortunate to find that feedback and align my life to it in some areas and not in other areas. And I just think that like looking at what's actually happening, what's the trajectory here with this risk, because um, that feedback will tell you so much. No, thank you for sharing that. And I think, you know, you touching on the value, it kind of segues us perfectly into our conversation today around the concept of the being and the doing. Mm -hmm. So with Dale Water Consultancy, our model is helping organization maximize on their positive intention or positive impact. But that positive intention or the desire for positive impact, it's an internal thing. Mm -hmm. Like you can't measure that desire Mm -hmm. externally, right? But that desire has to be actionable in order for you to see the impact of it. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about value, right, you mentioned the value, understanding where the intersection is between the problems that you're trying to solve and where your clients are, if they're, if you're going to still be relevant for them, Mm -hmm. right? That's a being thing, right? The technology and the services that you provide, that's the doing, right? Mm -hmm. That's someone going out, being a subject matter expert, fixing the wires, making sure things are secured, making sure everything is connected. Well, that's doing the being is what's happening internally. So the way that we talk about the being is mindset, perspective, internal talk, right? Feelings, Mm -hmm. emotions. Mm -hmm. And in the corporate space, what we've seen is sometimes there's no space to measure the being, Mm -hmm. even though the being is the mission statement, right? Mm -hmm. When you're reading the mission statement or value statement, you hear everything that has to do with the being. We want to help this. We want to do this. Our internal mission is this, right? But when you start measuring to see how it's actually manifesting in most spaces in the work that we do, you don't really see it. There's no consistency on that. There might be different folks that are champion mm-hmm. of the being just because of how they naturally operate, but there's no sense of accountability from the organization to say, hey, here are our core principles. Mm-hmm. This is how we're measuring it. This is how they're showing up. This is how we identify where the gaps are. This is how we... Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of come back to that because this, this is kind of where our conversation went um, when we started chatting about getting you in the podcast. Um, so my question to you is when you think about the being, right. And, and the way that I talk about the being is I, I think of it as this, like this, this synergy that's happening, that's consistent. And there's so many different moving parts mm-hmm. of it, but the only way that we can see it most of the time is how it's acted upon, how it's manifested. Mm-hmm. So as a CEO, a founder, right. Is the being important? Like when you think about this corporate space that we're in, right? We, we, things are moving so fast, right? Your team, I'm sure they have to keep up with all the different technology yes. that's out there. Yes. Whatever, you know, bot that's out there that's attacking, finding patches for it, right? Is the being important? Yes, <laughs> very much. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there. I, I think a couple of thoughts that come to mind. You know, one is that I think in capitalism with business, We're trying to create value and that value is realized in a financial way, right? That's how businesses work. And that can really push businesses towards a mechanistic view. Like what are the levers and mechanics that I have to pull and run in order to get these results that I want? And if you even look back to the advent of management as a science and a practice, look at the names that they put on things like human resources. People are just resources. We have a machine and we have a whole team managing the machines. And they realize, oh, now we have people with these machines. We don't have it. Okay, we need people who are managing the the people, but they're seen as like interchangeable resources in this in this old model that is very prevalent, I think, in a lot of the way we think about business. We think about our outcomes, what can we measure? We think about our performance and that's all necessary. But I really love what you're saying of how it brings in that these are people working in these spaces, whole people. And we bring not just what we do, but what we do is flowing out of who we are, how we think, what we believe, how we're approaching something, the space that we're in, how safe we are. like. 
all of that. And I think the more that we can create workspaces that encourage and integrate and pull out the whole person, the work that flows out of it is richer and creative and intuitive and all of that. You know, there's this interesting dynamic where in business, we want people to be creative, mm -hmm. but then how do we respond when they fail, when they're vulnerable, when they have anxiety, when there's rest? Because creativity requires all of that, right? I don't need to tell you that. 100%. You gotta be out, when you're out there dancing on a stage, like you gotta put yourself out there and there's vulnerability in that. Well, what is the environment? How does it respond to that vulnerability? And so I think that the call of business can be to welcome as much of the person as possible and help them to integrate who they are and develop who they are. And we've made such a bet at mainstay that if we just develop the person, mm. of course we have to have process and technology and all that, but developing the person, the rest kind of takes care of itself. Thank, thank you for sharing that. And, and, I, and I'm going to pull even more of what it actually looks like, right? So in, in, in a lot of the work that we do, when we get to, so when we present the concept and ideas, people, like managers, directors, chief of people, director of people, they're all on board, right? From a concept standpoint. Oh yeah, this is great, this is awesome. But when we start transitioning into the action phase, right? How do you implement this? That's when we feel the friction. Mm -hmm. And the friction is, we don't have time, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, it also feels like it's an exception, right? Mm -hmm. It feels like we gotta pause everything that we're doing in order for us to focus on the being. Mm -hmm. So therefore we don't have the capacity yeah, or the resources. And yeah, some of the stuff sense. we hear is like, what's something that we hear often? Um, well, if we focus on the being, what happens if things that show up that has nothing to do with the responsibility here? Right. Right. And then, so we, we, don't, have, we don't have the solution to solve every problem, right? Yes. So one of the things that we always encourage first, we say, listen, you got to create the space to meet people where they are first. Yes. You can't worry too much about you solutioning with every problem that you have. But the interesting part is when we do a great job of articulating what the being is, most employees, they're only reflecting on it based on their workforce experience. Yeah. It's not based on the outside world. So I always have to come back and be like, listen, the stuff that they're bringing up has to do with their experience here. It has nothing to do with what's happening yes. at home, what's happening yes. with their family. Yes. So just to reassure some of the executives that we, that we work with to know that, hey, it's in the pocket of... But the reality is, it's just a defense mechanism. Yes. You know, that's something that we've learned in a lot of our work. A lot of the self, we call it self-gremlin, the negative self-taught around an initiative or a project, especially when it's focusing on the being, is just a defense mechanism for them to not take ownership to that. Mm. So we have these seven principles that fall under our, our being model, right? Mm. And, our, and you touched upon some. So vulnerability, mm. empathy, mm -hmm. respect, consideration, yes. dependability, and then the last one is fairness, nice. right? So, so what we try to do is we try to demonstrate if you create a space where these principles are intentional, one, you're creating a culture where people can be transparent, right? In order for you to be vulnerable, it takes a form of transparency. Mm -hmm. It also takes a form of trust, mm -hmm. right? So like if I drop the ball, you're not around, right? Let's put, let's put ourselves in the, in the setting of mainstay, right? You got a technician that's going out there to service and maybe they figure out something, you know, something was missing or whatever it is. And they're like, well, I'm the only one out here. You know, this company, they don't really know technology well and nobody's really here from the company to keep me accountable. And then they just sweep it under the rug, everything is good. And then when the problems occur down the road, it's gonna come full back. But when you're intentional in creating a, a culture where feedback and transparency is there, they're gonna take ownership because they know that they're not gonna be penalized for being honest, right? Sure. So one of the things that we try to do with many of the organizations that we're working with is trying to make it tangible. So I'm curious from you, what are certain principles in, at Main State that you've tried to instill or your leadership team have tried to instill as part of your culture that are, that are, inten that are intentional, but it's also tangible. So if, I, if I'm a stranger, I walk into your, your yes. environment, right? Yes. Or if we need some technology support, yes. I call a Main State person comes through that I can see a sense of it without even yes. knowing it, without even knowing exactly what it is. But yes, that feel. I feel it, right? That mojo in the yeah. air. Yeah, what is, what is that? Yeah, if you don't mind giving out your secret sauce. Oh, no, it's great. <laughs> 
Yeah. And for us, it's so especially important because I think it's important for all companies, but you know, we embed in our clients and our whole mission is like delivering trustworthy IT that people actually enjoy. Imagine enjoying interacting with your IT department. And so it puts a special pressure on this whole thing because our clients feel our culture so directly and our clients experience. Our mission is to to absolutely delight our clients with their team and with their technology. So it puts even more pressure on this. So we think and talk about this a lot, like this is what Mainstay is about. And I wanna start by just saying, I think it just starts with us, right? It starts with you and me, like looking in the mirror and saying, what kind of people, how do we show up? How, what kind of reaction does our presence elicit from others? Mm. How safe do we make someone else? How vulnerable are we? Like anything that we want to see in a culture, we have to model and we have to make acceptable and we have to lead. And so to me, the pressure of leading is such a humbling thing because there are so many people who, whose lives I impact through the way I make decisions, through the impact of what I see as valuable or relevant. I impact, you know, the 80 at mainstay. And then there's thousands of people at clients that, that, um, that are impacted by them. And of course, all of our community and the families and everything out from there. And, and so I think leadership, what we always have to do is just start with, all right, how am I, when I come into work, how am I even outside of work? How integrated, what do I do with my emotions? You know, we all have this shadow self, this ego, this thing where we'd like to shove our pain, our anxiety, and then we like to work outside of that. And am I integrating that? Am I facing my stuff? Am I then able to lead seeing a person and really valuing them? And that I think is where it really starts. I'm curious, and, 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 and this is, it might be a vulnerable question to ask, but I am curious, like, what happens when there's times where someone might not fit the culture, right? So th this is the biggest friction that we feel, we find with many of the partners that we work with, right? It might be a director or someone in the executive team that's been there for a very long time. So they mm -hmm. hold historical mm -hmm. and legacy knowledge of how certain yeah. things work. Yeah. But their being is toxic, yes. right? Yes. It's completely, so when we're, when yes. we're talking to the employees, like most of the time, we're able to identify that right from the beginning. Yes. But it's not our assumption. It's the testimony of yes. the employees saying, hey, yes. this is how I've been treated. This yes. is what it looks like. This. So I'm curious from you, right? If someone doesn't fit quietly the culture of your organization, how do you navigate that, right? Mm -hmm. Because if, if the being is important and mm -hmm. the being is manifesting, mm -hmm. as a CEO, as a leader of a company with over 80 people, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's a great question. So if it starts with us, like as leaders and our own work and our own humility and care, then I think the way that we get that in the culture is you look at what do you allow and what do you reward? Non-negotiables. Yeah. So what's on either side of these guardrails? And we say in the, like, all right, we can have all, we need great policies. We need great programs. We need great wellness. I mean, we need all kinds of things. We've got award programs. We have core values, but ultimately culture comes down to how do you treat each other and how you treat each other is really defined by, again, what behaviors are you rewarding? And what are you saying? This is not allowed in our culture. And so someone who's toxic, you know, you can't separate what they're doing from being like you say the feedback it's like here's how i'm treated this is my experience of that person and so i think it's it requires getting really clear of what's success for our organization how do we define it and define it as holistically and fully as possible but their productivity is so great i'm gonna play devil's advocate oh yeah who, their yeah. product i mean yeah. you got that salesperson they're out there they're bringing the numbers they're yes. blowing their yes. quarterly like but how do, you know what I mean? Your business yeah. to a certain extent is actually growing because of this individual. So like, so how are you going right. to manage that? So What's it, going on? So I'm this. putting on the fire right now. No, I love this. So at this point, we're saying we've already recognized that this person is toxic in terms of their treatment to others and is harming other people's overall well-being. But there are clear financial things that are successful because of this person's contribution, mm -hmm. right? That's where we are. And we're saying, what do we do? So... You know, it's really easy for me to say, hey, that's a non-negotiable in the culture. Now, what I think is a fascinating part of this is why. So when I talk with business leaders a lot, there's this 
push towards like, oh, we want a great culture and how do we win best companies to work for like you guys mm -hmm. have, because we want retention. I'm like, well, why do you want good retention and good culture? Well, so that we can spend less money on recruiting and we can make more money. And I say, okay, so your real value here is making more money and there's things you should do and having a good culture and retention. And you might be able to make an argument from that, that you should fire that person because it's going to hurt your retention. It's going to hurt your culture and their performance might be good, but the overall team's performance is going to suffer. The, the, the science and that's very, very clear, right? A toxic leader, toxic person, impacts everyone around them. And so even if their performance looks good, their impact and drag in the overall team is going to pull the company back. Now that's an argument from that value system of just, we're trying to make as much money as possible. You make a very clear argument that a toxic person creates a toxic culture, which ultimately ends up being a low performance culture, right? So their, their broader impact is what you could argue. But I think there's an, another more fascinating argument here which is how are we defining success? What are we actually wanting to leave as our mark on the world? I love to think about dying, okay? Think about the last days of your life. If you're sitting on a cabin in the woods, on a rocking chair, looking out over the sunset and you're reflecting on your life, how do you live for that moment to be a moment of satisfaction, a moment of, I have become the person that I was capable of becoming, and I have impacted the people around me to help them grow into who they were capable of, and I have let, am leaving the world a better place. I have become who I could be, and I'm leaving the world better off because I was. Isn't that what we all want there? We want to think about our relationships, not the quarterly earnings that we be, the people, the relationships. And so I think that most people actually truly value that. But in business, they tend to have this weird dualistic split where they say, we're going to leave that stuff over here and all my tears and my emotions and my care and my love for my kids and all those things are going to keep here. But at work, it's just about the numbers and I'm going to drive people. I don't care if they work 60 hours a week. That's what work is. And it's like, wait, don't you care about your kids and their kids? Don't you want them home? How do we actually drive for a vision of success that's meaningful? I think people are hungering for this day to actually have lives where what we do with work, this thing that we spend more waking hours doing than anything else in our life, hours of life, more waking hours working than anything else that we actually do this for something that's meaningful that the end of the day we'll look back and work was a massive contributor to true authentic success for us and those around us no i i think you you, you hit it you hit it on the, on the dot when you're talking about that relevancy right because that relevancy is the key and, and that's kind of the secret sauce to a lot of the work that we do like we come in and we understand <laughs> the different narrative that might be there already. But our number one thing in order to make connection is relevance. Understanding the other person, who they are, what they have to bring, what they have to, you know, what matters to them, what makes them tick, right? What motivates them and try to find that connection around the work itself and what, what does that look like? But I'm going to flip the table here real quick, Ryan, because... When we look at some of the successful business leaders, you know, that have done crazy things and people love what they've done, there's also a side of the being almost becoming too commercialized mm -hmm. that it becomes inauthentic, yes. right? So there's, there's certain yes. leaders that are like great motivators, right? They might be so great at like motivating you, you know, they're, they're, they're very passionate, motivational, mm -hmm. But on the technical side of things, when it comes to development, they might lack that, right? So mm -hmm. I'm going to give you an example here. For, for example, you know, um, the former CEO and founder of, of Zappos, who died recently, the shoe company, mm -hmm. very, Tony Harris, very yeah. sad story so of, sad. of kind of that, that process of the journey that he took and where he ended. So when he was... The success, the early success of Zappos was the culture that they created, mm -hmm. the intentional culture that they mm -hmm. created. But something unique happened, right? After a couple of years, the culture actually became the market, right? The, the marketing approach mm -hmm. of the company mm -hmm. relied so much on the culture, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I was listening to a documentary in regards to the transformation of Zappos over, over time, they said, you know, it was authentic, but once it became kind of what we were known for, mm -hmm. then it became inauthentic because we were pressured to continue to hold on to some of these principles that in hindsight, it wasn't really 
the core of it really wasn't there. It was more about the performance of the mission and the vision versus the core being of all the individual. So there is this intersection, right, of where sometimes certain leaders, right, or certain culture might become known mm-hmm. for what they've done through yes. the being. Yes. But then they divert away from the core of it, which the core of it is actually the individual. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious from your stand, right? Now we're flipping it because part of my work is to look at everything at 360, right? Like even though I'm a strong believer in the importance of having a culture that focuses on the being, but there's been examples of that, right? Mm-hmm. Like for example, let's look at, um, is it Thonos? The, the, the medical... Theranos. Theranos, Elizabeth right? Yeah. She was driven by, mm-hmm. we're going to transform all of this, you know, the medicine world in a way that we're testing mm-hmm. certain things, right? And I'm sure some of the folks that came on early on were bought into the, mm-hmm. to the vision and the mission. But she leveraged, right, that mission in mm-hmm. order to manipulate, yes. right? Yes. So I, I am super curious of yes. that, right? Because we've seen it. Because a lot of folks say, oh, I trusted this leader. I tr- hear yes. the reason why. You know, they always showed up yes. this way. They always made me feel this way. But then through that trust, they ended up, they ended up taking advantage, right? Yes. They ended up yes. wasting money. They ended up, you know, putting people in a bad position. So I'm curious from you, how can you still, how can you stay authentic with the being when the being becomes almost the brand? Yes. When the being becomes almost yeah, bigger than you, it. right? Yeah. yeah, I think, you know, authenticity resonates and people are hungry for something deeper and more meaningful in our culture, especially now. I mean, we're seeing such a crack of the systems by which we made meaning and understood our world politically, religiously, socially, breaking down and being divisive. And people are hungry for inspiration. They're hungry for something that makes sense in the world. Mm-hmm. And so leaders who have the ability to inspire, especially have a power now because we're hungry for this. And I think that you know, you use the word manipulation. There's a really interesting difference between inspiration and manipulation because Mm. inspiration, it's like, well, what's the end of this is inspiration is for your ends, your true success. Manipulation is for mine Mm. and they can look similar in the beginning, right? I can get your behavior to change. I can get you excited. I can get your passion stirred up and get you going in a direction. But at the end, where's the hook go? Is it towards your own ascendancy and freedom or is it towards my ends? And that's where we have to be so careful in business because you know, business makes money and it makes money for owners, for shareholders, like shareholders have the power in the money. They make the top decisions and they get the money from it. And that power, you know, we know from history, we know that power tends to corruption and that when you more power you get, there's this tremendous force to just keep amassing it and using it. And in business, there can be such a, like, like as an entrepreneur, as an example, a lot of the entrepreneurs that I meet, like, they want to talk about how big's your house, how much money you make, and what are you doing with this, oh, this deal. And, and it's very much like there's this feeling when you're a successful entrepreneur that you've made it. You're the man or the woman, and it's like you've got, you're in this club. And, and it's like, no, power is meant for good. It's mm. meant to push down. And I think that what we have to do as leaders is recognize first that when we're being authentic, when we are being inspiring, that there's going to be a massive temptation to make more money off of that, to turn that, that there's going to be especially temptation in our organizations to monetize that and then find ways to both root our own identities in the being mode and not the having mode, right? Of having money and getting success. Like you can't find your way to peace. You can't Pac-Man your way to peace by enough, you eat enough dots, you get there, you get enough money, enough success. No, if you don't have peace now, you're not going to get it through, through accomplishments. And to say, how do we root ourselves in the, the communities we have, the, the people that we're with? And then how do we push power down in our organization so that it's not about this cult of leader or this thing? And really watch what we're monetizing. Really watch because businesses will monetize power. I mean, that's what they're right. designed to do. And so we've got to be really careful about it. No, I, 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 love, I love that example that you provide. And as you were giving your, you know, as you were giving your description of, what that looks like all i kept hearing is humility and selfless you know and and power confronts that right because when in in whatever form of power notoriety possessions of wealth resources it's hard to continue to be 
I think the humility in action is actually selfless, selflessness, Mm -hmm. right? Because the selflessness brings you back to the grounding level that regardless of what you have, regardless what you've achieved, regardless what you've done, Mm -hmm. you're still just like everyone else. And that selfless mentality allows you to be actionable in a way that it represents the core principles that you've you held on to right that you believed into right and i think that's the piece that it's hard to continue to have that self-reflection you know it's actually interesting last week i was in a meeting with um uh two executives for this organization and i I asked the, the, the executive who was kind of the lead for this group of leaders, and I asked you know, how things have been within the last couple of months when it comes to the work that we're doing around the being. And you know, we had a vulnerable space, but the exec said, you know, for the last couple of months, because a lot of our front-facing work has taken a lot of pressure from me, I focused more externally mm-hmm. than I have internally. So meaning, the executive gave themselves an exception to not focus on the being pertaining to mm. them mm-hmm. because somehow they were still fulfilling the being mm-hmm. based on what they were doing external. And I found it to be so fascinating. I'm super grateful that we created a space for this exec to be this vulnerable mm-hmm. in this setting. But at the same time, I had to remind the exec that you're just because you're not focusing on it it doesn't mean it's not existing Mm. your being is still there Mm -hmm. it's still there you've chose to be to not consciously reflect on it because you've separated oh we've been doing all this front facing work where we have to listen and do Mm -hmm. this and provide where we're going Mm -hmm. that you completely took yourself out of it and i feel that for some executives when their company gets to a to a certain mm-hmm. magnitude and notoriety is mm-hmm. there. And I feel like that's what happened to the, to the Zappos uh, founder, that it was much easier for him to focus externally around the being versus internally of what Could it be. meant for him, mm-hmm. right? Because part of your being, it's ongoing work, yes. right? And I think yes. the humility, it's so fascinating. Um, it's funny, like even like, so I'm just going to give you a little a little insight a little bit on on for me personally and what i what i found um has kept me grounded over the years i'm involved with a lot of different things in the community i mean obviously i've, I've worked for different tech startups and I've, I've had some success to a certain extent but it's the community that i've been invested in the kids the family they keep me grounded. Mm-hmm. And it's so fascinating. Even my appearance today, like, like even me having dreads, it's intentional. You should see how I go to the, the, like the grocery or something sometimes. Like, I have learned over the years the importance of that selflessness, that selflessness, the power that it has for me personally. Because what it does is, it just grounds me. Like it just completely grounds, grounds me to the fullest. And I think for many leaders, sometimes it's hard. Yes, I don't hit everything hundred percent. There's, there's times where I'm, I can probably seem a little boastful or, or cocky or whatever the word is. But I think that that humility and selfless is what like, it just grounds me. Like it, it just brings me back. Like I could be in certain settings where I know that person knows me from a professional setting. And they're checking me. I was like, if I talk to Dara right now, am I look, like, I, I know it. But if I'm wearing a suit and tie and we're at a business meeting or something, like, I know that person will, will, will engage with me differently. Because that, to that person, it's their own self-esteem of how they want to be presented at that moment, mm-hmm. right? Where for me, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't really care so much about that. And, 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 my, and my background is very mm-hmm. different, too. Like, I feel like I've had a chance to get a second chance of life. So the way that I view the world around me is completely different. But I think that that humility piece, it's like, and I see that in the corporate space, many of the works that we're doing with executives directly, individually, it's, we call it like bone breaking. Like some of these folks, like 
they've been positioned in a certain way for so long mm-hmm. and it's so hard for them to see the basics mm-hmm. the basics and a lot of times we see it happening live like there's times when you know there's there's a solution that they've implemented right and how employees might have reacted to it mm-hmm. like we hear from the executive can you believe it like they thought that wasn't good enough right? it's like hold on for a second it's supposed to be their this supposed yeah. to be their experience right yeah like like the expectation here might actually be that they might not be receptive because you've dropped the ball for so long that this yeah. one action that you're doing now is not good enough that they're they're going to need to see consistency over time for them to have that credibility from you but because they have pushback right now all of a sudden you're offended mm-hmm. right like a lot of the executives that we work with like they get super offended based it's, on. It's also hard though, <laughs> isn't it? Business and caring and your own stuff. It's so hard. It is super hard. It's so hard. It, it is yeah. super hard. You know, I have like such kindness for those people as I hear you talk of like, yeah, it's just hard and business. There's so many issues and challenges and we're, and we're trying, but I love what you're inviting people into. Cause I think what, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're good, Ryan. You're, you're, you're good. There's such, such good stuff that I think what, you know, when you say humility and selflessness, I feel like what we're talking about here is love. Like, cause love is a state of being. Love is actually saying my entire being is, cause you can love somebody that you're really upset with, right? You can be really mad with your spouse and love them fiercely in that same moment or your kids or whomever. And yet love is this thing that's like, no, my being is patterned for your best interest to look out for you, that my best serves your highest and that I'm going to, and the you know, only way to do that is to pattern yourself and to do that work. And I love what you were saying about how you have to really have practices for your own self to, and not ignore it. Because if we ignore it, it just starts to fray and do its own things. And like you say, we can't, we can't deny ourselves. We can't deny our emotions, our body, our being. And I'm a big believer in wisdom practices and that there's sets of practices that are actually time honored and neuroscience proven that really help us at the deeper ways of knowing, not just the propositional knowing, right? Not Mm -hmm. just the stuff that we read and remember and like you read this business book, but this like, how are we with people? What's our presence? What do we value? What's relevant to us? What are our priorities? Things like meditation and contemplation or prayer. If you have a, if you have a faith, um, deep reading of books, therapy, count, I mean, counseling therapy has changed my life dramatically. And that we, and then having communities of people engaged in this, then we can show up as leaders where we're paying attention. We're clean. We're actually showing up in love and we can have cultures of high performance in our business and actually go and crush those business goals, but to do it with a root in love. No, I, I agree with you. And, and one, one of the big thing that we always say, it's that it's iterative, mm-hmm. right? Because people feel sometimes they put a lot of pressure that they're always going to hit it at 100%. But the reality is, it's not that you're going to hit it 100% all the time. It's that you've created a space to reflect when you drop the ball. Yeah. Right? And create, creating that space for, for grace, creating that space for grace for yourself. Yes. And a lot of folks, in a lot of the work that we do, that's actually where some of the things that hold people back from implementing is the fact that they put so much pressure on themselves that like, hey, yeah. if, I, if this becomes the expectation, what happens if I can't yeah. maintain this? But, but isn't that again the doing that like, even thinking it that way, that that can be a performance that I've got to hit a mark or drop the ball in a being way when it's actually isn't the being way an invitation to a journey that says you're broken and I'm broken and we're both on a journey to become better versions of ourselves and help everybody around us to actualize their potential, to be, to feel transformative love and to be built up and change. And along the way we fall down, we get muddy, but we pick up, but we head towards that right thing carrying ourselves along the way, right? It's, it's a journey. It's not a performance in the being mode. So, so my corporate exec would say, oh, heck no. Because if I expose where I fall short, right? If yeah. I'm vulnerable, it's going to yeah. be used against me. Yeah. Like we hear this all the time. Well, like it's yes. going to be used against me. My weakness, if they're yes. exposed, my colleagues will use yes. it against me. Well, 
And that's a big deal. And I think we have to recognize in this conversation that not all environments are safe to be vulnerable. Like it's really wise to not be vulnerable in a lot of yeah. environments. And I'm fortunate that as a founder and CEO, like I get to have a lot of impact on that culture. I get to really be, I get to set a tone in a way that, you know, it's unique as a founder and CEO. And I think that for everyone, we can all strive to be wholly integrated, show up as our full selves, and then test with some vulnerability and see. And if you have control over that culture, like if it's a team, like a manager who's working with their team, they can. That, that's a place where it's like, look, you have a lot of that impact. You have the influence. But when it's peers or it's bosses, you want to test that. You got to you gotta, you gotta walk with your eyes open because it isn't always safe. Now that might be a mean that that's a place you need to go find a new work. I mean, right. I think that meaningful work <laughs> is worth true. making great sacrifices sacrifice for, including sacrificing earning power or other opportunities in order to be in safer spaces. But you know, we, it, it, you do have to test it. So what we do is we actually create a space for that to occur. Nice. That's so really cool. It's mentally, it's, it's an interesting thing because you have to know what's about to transpire mm-hmm. because if if you're if you don't create that space it might never happen so let me give you a quick story so i was working with this property management company out of boston they're located all over the country working with a committee of 16 employees across all the division departments okay executive team a very diverse group at every level in terms of sexual orientation um nationality age and when we when we formed that committee that was the first cross-department, cross-culture, cross-region committee of any form in the existence of this company ever. Okay. Okay? So yeah. just, just, just some context. Yes. So when we established the committee, it was more of a culture and climate and DEI within their workspace and try to figure out ways that they can improve. Everything was through Zoom. But mind you, I interviewed every committee members, right? So I had a sense of who they are, mm-hmm. but they didn't really know each other at mm-hmm. that level, right? So about maybe four meeting in, we had a conversations on, the question was, where are certain areas where you don't feel a sense of belonging within your company? Where are certain areas where you feel a sense of belonging? It's a great right? question. The executive team members that were part of the committee they couldn't help it but be super defensive. Anytime mm-hmm. someone brought something up, yeah. they would defend the hear. company, yeah. right? That because it, it, it painted a bad light of who mm-hmm. they are, right? Yeah. So one of the individual just opened up, right? And as it's happening, I'm very like tentative, even though we're virtually there, like mm-hmm. I feel like I'm there. Yeah, you can, yeah. I'm like, it's feel about, your tension. I'm like, it's about to happen. Uh-huh. And in my head, I'm like, as long as nobody's rude, nobody curses yes. someone out, yes. like I'm gonna let this happen. Yes. Like it has to happen because if they don't experience this vulnerable experience, none mm. of the work that we're gonna do for the next couple of months, right. they're ever gonna get. Well, that's why you're there, right? Yeah. So Ryan, it's happening. She starts crying and she's expressing. So she was talking about visibility, right? She was like, when I look at the company, the visibility of who's running the company, who's leading, doesn't reflect who I am. Mm. And even when, it, when we think about the space, right? When we think about the corporate space and the layout, so she's breaking down and then other folks start reflecting, right? And as it's happening, I can tell certain people, it was very uncomfortable to yes. be in that space where you, you felt you wanted to resolve the issue right away but also it's the company that you're leading that you're hearing and you're in a group yes so i'm just i'm tell me more what does that look like for you right like you're generalizing but i'm curious based on your own experience Mm -hmm. what is so so i'm digging they're opening up at the end of the meeting um i receive a couple of emails from some of the leadership oh i can't believe you didn't intervene 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 over what Mm -hmm. Um, well, you know, it kind of felt like it was getting out of hand. I'm like, what was getting out of hand about it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what they said or what she said, that's not really true. We have different people that do this. I'm like, mm-hmm. they were reflecting from their own perspective. 
perspective. They, they even mention it. This might not be the truth, but this is how I yes. experience it. Yes. And I said, if we can create a space where the 16 of you can have this honest conversation, mm-hmm. how is the rest of the 750 mm-hmm. employees mm-hmm. that are relying on the work that you do now mm-hmm. to help transform this company will occur? Mm-hmm. So tell me, where did you feel the most friction and why? Mm-hmm. Right? So they're doing their little dance, and eventually what they came back to was, I sit in the executive team, I feel ownership to some of this negative mm-hmm. perspectives and point of view people were saying, and I couldn't help but to have my yes. executive act right. instead of my this personal act to know that here's a yes. colleague who's expressing what their experiences have been, right? Yes. And I said, listen, when you come into this meeting, there's going to be times where we need your executive hat because of a process or something that we need to unpack or mm-hmm. what we're going to do for next step. But most of the time, we're going to need you because you don't, you're not the company. You're a human being that's leading different folks. Mm-hmm. And part of our committee, we need to get to know each other mm-hmm. first. And I'm telling you, Ryan, that was the breakthrough. But the problem is it's that friction. Mm-hmm. Even when it's positive friction, most of our spaces, we don't have the space, especially in our corporate space, to engage in those positive mm-hmm. confrontation and positive friction. And what ends up happening, a lot of those things are just swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. And those who are impacted the most, they have the least amount of power to actually bring change because nobody's listening to them. Mm-hmm. And those who have power and control, they've just normalized it. That's part of our culture. And the scariest thing that we find is you might find it on mid-tier employees and management in terms of their team. That same behavior bottles all the way back up to the executive. Mm-hmm. The executive themselves are also experiencing the same challenges. Yes. And, but they formed that culture. It's, they formed it. Their directors yes. have formed it. Their managers have formed it. And even the team themselves. Yes. So coming back to you. Right. If we if you had encouragement to other CEO executive when it comes to the being, mm-hmm. right, what would you tell them? Right? Especially in this world where we are now, right? The last two years, the workforce has been challenged, right? People are walking away from million dollar mm-hmm. salary, half a million dollar salary, because they realize that their peace, mm-hmm. their being needed so much more. Mm-hmm. And during the pandemic, that realization manifested. And now everyone's like, oh, we focus on our culture. We focus. But they're still, if they don't handle the being, regardless mm-hmm. of what they do with the doing, mm-hmm. they're never going to get to the heart of their employees. So my question to you is, if you could speak to other executives, other leaders, yeah. why is it important? And what can they do to at least have a starting point? Right. Where they can trust and feel that the investment around the being is as important as all the other investment that they make. Yeah. Well, I think. Boy, I mean, I think first. Isn't it such an exciting opportunity? Like there's such a sense of how many of us can we all really stop for a minute and think like, how often do I feel carefree? Mm. How often do I feel peace, like in my bones, like in my muscles? How often do I feel joy? And like, when do I think I'm going to have joy and peace? And a lot of times we think, well, when I get this done and when I accomplish this and when I get this acquisition, and it's like, does it ever come? It's like, it doesn't come. And so I think there's such a joyous call in your work and in what you're saying to say, hey, let's check ourselves Mm -hmm. and let's actually say, like, how's this working for us? Like you said, the executive's feeling the same thing of like that my emotions, my other desires, my anxieties are not welcome in the workplace. My voice of challenge in this might not be welcome in this culture. And to say, how do we actually start with authentically? How am I doing? What does this look like? And begin that journey because it is a journey personally. And then I think in the workplace, I mean, you referred to it with, I mean, I just want to second what you said of, you know, when you handled their response of, hey, how, how come you allowed this? 
you know, I think you were teaching them guardrails because there are things that aren't allowed. And there are things where it's like, look, we're, we're not therapists and we're not like, we're not the people to talk to about certain things, but that we can be safe and empathetic and feel them and then skill up of like, Hey, can we lower our corporate defenses and be human? And some of that requires like wiggle your toes, get into your body, feel what you're feeling and say, wait a second, I'm getting tense. Okay. That awareness That's probably why meditation is so great, right? As it starts to train you how to be aware of what you're feeling and what to do with it. But to say, okay, how do I just be there for you right now and let you vent and hear you and be empathetic? And how do I make you feel that empathy? That's a skill. And then how do we turn and talk about that and actually look for the truth and work together and I'll be open and here's my perspective and your perspective. Those are skills. And so I think teaching the guardrails and teaching the skills is how we then bring that change into the workforce. Thank you for that. We're coming towards our end of our interview. We could probably already forever. It's almost been an hour, which is crazy. Definitely a part two soon. Um, Part of our podcast, as 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 we focus on our work, is grounded on the being, right? Mm -hmm. The being and the doing, helping organization understand that in order for them to maximize on their positive impact internally or externally it's important to be able to focus on the being and the doing and knowing what the intersection of them. Our, pack, our podcast is about perseverance, mm-hmm. right? And um, it's, it's been my slogan for so long. And I feel like in the last two years, um, perseverance is, is, is a common used word because mm-hmm. we've all had to persevere through um, what happened with COVID and everything else. So when you think about the being, right, even in the corporate space today with inflation and, you know, the scarce around where our economy is going, yes. right, people, yes. are, people are cutting costs, you know, and what, what would you say in terms of person, like, what would you say to another executive or an, another CEO, or another founder or anyone that in terms of going into this next season, right? When you mm-hmm. think about their being and when you think about their ability to persevere, like what's a, what's a word of encouragement and a word of mm-hmm. advice that you can give, Ryan? Well, well first of all, as when I have those opportunities, I always want to learn. I mean, I learn there's every one of us is such a journey of perseverance. I don't think any of us have gotten anywhere in our life without that. And so I have so much to learn from all of those executives that you reference. You know, I think I can just share from my own personal story and so what I'm going to say sounds very not encouraging, mm. but is, is to really embrace suffering mm. and really see the, there's so, I think in my story, I have realized how much in my life I run from pain. I run from discomfort. Let's turn the movie on. Let's grab the ice cream. Let's go make more money. Let's buy some to, to stop, to make me not feel uncomfortable. Let me get a new job, design something new, find something out there because I don't want to deal with this pain when actually we can turn and face that pain and confront it. And you know, there was a time in my life where I really bought into this. If you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. You heard that phrase Mm -hmm. and like, just follow your passions and it will, all work out great and I would see these like I just stopped reading Inc. magazine because it made me so miserable because it looked like everyone's so happy and successful and of course you find out later like I remember when Elizabeth Holmes was on this the Theranos founders on the cover and I was like ah she's like younger than I am and so right re- and then like you find out later like okay wait a second and like there's a lot more story and a lot of people are wildly successful and don't have as many challenges and, and problems in their workplace and, and jobs as I but but ultimately I thought if I was doing the right work things would be easy mm. And that led me to feeling like I need to leave Mainstay because Mainstay gets hard and, and like, oh, I need to go found something new or go, go seek the limelight. And it's been the degree of embracing that hard stuff that I haven't wanted to do and saying like, I've just got to get stronger. I've got to get better. And then like, I can't, I'm super anxious. I got to get therapy. I got to figure out what's going on inside me. Why? Oh, this isn't, I'm wired. I learned this as a kid in my environment. And like, you learn these things. You know, there was a time, real quick story, there was a time for me when we mainstay outgrew our operational sophistication. The wheels started coming off, right? We were around 35 people 
and our quality started to suffer. And man, I love serving clients, like happy clients, happy team. That makes me so happy to the core of my being. And when they're all unhappy, oh, I hated it. And I had an operations person who was like, I can fix this, the process. And I didn't like the approach, the culture, but I was like, I need help. I don't know how to do this. I'm the big picture guy. I'm the visionary. I'm the recruiting and sales. I'm not the operations person. That's not me. That's not what I love to do. So I had this person just run everything. And it just sucked the culture and the life out of the business over time. Mm. And the team ended up coming to me and being like, we're all going to leave. Like if something doesn't change. And I was like, well, I want to leave too. Like, wait a second. And it was like, okay, we got to do something different. But what I had to do was embrace that. I've got to figure out how to be a business leader who pays attention to the stuff that I don't want to pay attention to, mm. who learns to do this stuff, the hard process system. How do we build the right structures of a business so we can get the results? And I had to embrace that. And then I had to embrace my personal pain of like, ah, there's a lot of hardship here. And we have a world now with a lot of hardship that's stirring up a lot for a lot of us. I mean, man, this cataclysmic apocalyptic prophecies about what's happening makes me feel anxious. Mm. So what do I do with that? How do I embrace that suffering in a healthy way that helps me to grow as a person and become more measured and more wise, strong and wise so we can see clearly to lead? Wow, Ryan, thank you so much for, for, that, for that, those last comments, you know, I, I, Embrace the suffering and embrace the challenge. Yes. Right. Yes. Normalize that as part of yeah. As part, part of the of norm. life. That's it's life. There's no <laughs> escape from suffering, man. It's what we do with it that defines us. Ah, Ryan, thank you so much. I, I appreciate you being able to join us today with Persevere to Excel podcast. Um, so organic and authentic. This is why we've created this space. I love it. We can talk to business leaders, but in a way that it doesn't focus on their accolades or what they've done. It focuses on them as humans, right? Because it's important for people to be able to see that connection yeah. from human to human. So thank you all for my listeners. Um, continue to subscribe, listen to our podcast and share it. Um, we have some really awesome podcasts coming out very soon and have a great day. Persevere to Excel. Go get it. Bow. Right. We did it. I love it, man. That was awesome. That was so great.